Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, November 25th. What is happening in Iran now is the largest civil rights movement since the revolution there in 1979. For over two months, people have been risking their lives, taking to the streets, following the brutal killing of Masa Amini at the hands of the so-called morality police. These are the videos Iran doesn't want you to see. Police firing in the streets, women cutting their hair, burning hijabs in rage, students' demonstrations. People have taken to the streets across Iran, angry at the government after a woman died while in police custody. This is how UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, described the situation there at the 35th special session of the Human Rights Council earlier this week. It pains me to see what is happening in the country. The images of children killed, of women beaten in the streets, of people sentenced to death. We have seen waves of protests over the past years, calling for justice, equality, dignity and respect for human rights. They have been met with violence and repression. According to the UN, more than 300 people have been killed in the crackdown and more than 14,000 have been arrested. But what makes this movement different from previous uprisings is that it is going global. Since the beginning of the protests in September, the Iranian diaspora all around the world, connected together by social media, are using their networks, skills and resources to bring attention to the human rights crisis that is unfolding. And creative communities in contemporary art and fashion are getting behind the movement too. This week on the BOF podcast, I sit down with two creative leaders from both sides of the Atlantic to hear their personal stories of being part of the Iranian diaspora and to learn about the work they are doing to help people understand the intersectional solidarity of this movement by activating creative communities to share their stories. Here are Moj Madara and Dina Nasser Hadivi on the BOF podcast. This is a conversation we've been trying to align for quite some time. But before we dive into everything that's happening in Iran and all the incredible work you're both doing to activate creative communities around the world, I just wanted to get to know you a little better for our listeners, but also for my own benefit. And maybe we could start with you, Dina, and you could tell us a little bit about your personal connection to the Iranian diaspora. Sure. So I was born in Iran. I was born in 77. And I left when I was about 18 months old. And my family's never been back. I've lived between Europe and the US. I grew up mainly in France for a big part of my life. And then I studied in the US for university. And then I basically worked between New York, Paris, London. So I think I was very much like many other Iranians, a citizen of the world. But my roots and my culture were always really important to me. And the more time went by, the more I felt just, you know, really not only connected, but I just had this 
need to reconnect with where I came from as much as possible, because for many of us, it hasn't been easy holding on to where we come from. Because I think that for many years, Iranians who left after the revolution were very deeply traumatized. And that created a bit of a segregation for some time, at least on my end, where I grew up. That's what I noticed. So we were very close with each other. And our community, when I was growing up, I actually grew up in south of France, We were really close between the Iranians from the diaspora and the Lebanese who had their civil war around the same time. But it was a very long process to be able to reconnect properly with where I came from and to really reconnect with our community. Because I work in the art world, I was lucky enough to be able to really reconnect with my country through arts and culture and through artists mainly. So my family's been my country mainly for many years But when it came to culture and properly the arts, etc., that's really what reconnected me with Iran. And I started going back 15 years ago to uh, work with some artists. And through the cultural channels, really, that's how I kept my connection to Iran all these years. But my family's never been back. So that's my story. Moj, what about you? What's your story? And how do you feel? I mean, it's interesting to hear Dina talk about the revolution and the collective trauma that came with that exodus. How do you relate to Iran and the kind of Iranian culture and being part of the diaspora? I think every Iranian I know has spent the past three months meditating on this question because I think of us as domesticated Iranians here in the West. Many of us were calling ourselves Persian, whether it's from trauma or safety. We rebranded ourselves as Persians, and I myself included, over the past three months, have uh, been thinking a lot about how Iranian my life has been and will be. And I was born here. My parents came here as young students, and I was the accidental first child. We moved back to Iran, and then my parents were warned by their parents to leave in 79 that, in fact, this revolution was truly happening. There is a deep level of trauma for every Iranian in the diaspora. I wonder sometimes, are they happier than we are? We are so separated from our country. We are so alienated from ourselves and our culture. So I grew up in a house with two grandmothers that only spoke Farsi in the home, and we only ate Persian food in the home. And being Iranian was something that my parents instilled at us very young. It was always a conversation of how full of pride we should be of our culture, our language, and our food. But I think when you're a child who was born in the 70s or 80s, it's unavoidable the trauma of the Iran hostage crisis. And as Gul Shifta said so brilliantly in an interview last night, that our country has been taken hostage over the past 43 years. And there's a tremendous amount of shame I think that we all feel that the Iranian people are on a global stage represented by an Islamic Republic that does not mirror the values or the culture of the people. And for anyone who's ever been to Iran, and I've been many times, I've never been somewhere that is more warm, that is more beautiful, that is more rich with culture, where someone will welcome you into your home and and make you a meal or take you to the bazaar to show you the best place to find the pistachios or a gold necklace you're looking for. And I've been to a million zillion airports in my life, and I've never been to an airport where the entirety of my family shows up to greet me at two in the morning. And I don't know that I've ever felt more loved anywhere else in the world as much as I have when I've been there. And so for me as a queer Iranian who has felt mostly isolated from my culture, there is a deep, deep, deep yearning for me 
And I think for many of us, rather than dream of a home in Tuscany or in Greece, that you would be able to have a home there. And so for us, I think this is a fight for freedom. And I think this is a fight for identity. But I think many, many, many of us are fighting to simply just go home. Reverse migration, for sure. The thing is, for all of us, like Mo is saying, I think it also, this process of immigration that happened, because I'm a first generation immigrant. I mean, I'm 45 years old. And I can tell you, I remember so clearly, even though I was really young, and my mother and my grandmother protected us against so many things and took us away very young. I still remember my grandmother being traumatized by how certain things were progressing in the early 80s. I still remember my mother crying over immigration issues. These are things, they always say children are like sponges. And no matter how beautiful my life was, I mean, I grew up in South of France, it was beautiful. But what I mean to say is that there are certain things that stay. And I still remember because like you, Moj, my grandmother for me was really my bridge to my country. She's the one, she always taught me Farsi. I had to take Farsi lessons when I was a kid. She's the one who helped me with my homework. I mean, I write like a 12 year old, but I can read. But that was really my connection with my country. And my mom always was very proud of where she came from. But there was that segregation I felt growing up with what Iran was and what Iran became. And I think that it took our generation to sort of become united again, because it's fact that when the revolution happened 43 years ago, there were outside powers involved, but people still took the streets. And I think that created a very deep segregation in our community where we grew up sort of being afraid of where we came from and at the same time proud. So it was this very weird combination. And I think the beauty of this movement right now, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, Moj, is that our identity came out so strongly and we all united so strongly for the first time from the outside and the inside together. It was just a very sudden thing that just came out out of all of us. And that's the beauty of this movement is that it's for the first time, everybody's united and it's become very clear that the Iranians inside and the Iranians outside are one and that this government, the Islamic Republic is our enemy. That's always been the case, I think, for those of us living in the diaspora and for those inside. But we never knew how to help, I think, really from the outside until now. It's like that's why I think it's really a revolution in that sense, despite all the previous uprisings, I would have never known how to help them before. So I feel there is this unity. I never even knew Moj before. And now I'm like following her updates daily. And for me, she's like my sister fighting on this. And like, she's one of the biggest voices. Golshifte is like our commander in chief in Paris. We're like a freaking army from the outside. I think that I finally see why we exploded in all different corners of the world 43 years ago so that today we could be united globally to speak up for our people inside and to show that Iran is not at all what people thought it was, including our own community. So for the people who are listening, who have not been following everything that's been going on in Iran over the last 60 some odd days. So a 22-year-old Kurdish girl First of all, her name is Masa Zina Amini. She is a Kurdish woman. She came with her parents to Tehran to sightsee, which is a very popular thing to do. And she was wearing kulats. Her ankles were showing. She did not have improper hijab. She had improper pants that cut off essentially right in the middle of her calves, right above her ankles. And she was stopped for these pants. 
she was held without representation, without legal, without her family present. And she essentially was beaten to death. And she died in the custody of the Islamic Republic Guard. And a very brave journalist was able to release this information to the public via Twitter and Instagram. And this information went completely viral. I would say it was the groundswell of this movement that the Kurdish and the Baluchi have been fighting now for well into a decade. Um, And the Iranian youth essentially were prepared to meet the Islamic regime where they are. And so Masazina Amini has now become the symbol of this movement. And so to help everyone understand, we created this living document called How to Talk About Iran, which is a living document that we update every day. And we just organized this document to explain. 45 years ago, there was this guy named Ayatollah Khomeini. He was exiled from Iran. Reza Pahlavi and the Pahlavi had been essentially the ruling monarchy of Iran since 1953, which is a coup. And I think I try really hard to stay away from the Western politics of how the coup happened and how Reza Pahlavi was pushed out because there's no doubt that Western players, both British and U.S., had a hand in it. I say our guardrails for us, and I think everyone in the diaspora, as hard as it is, is to stay out of a postmortem of Western policy over the past 45 years. Because what is going on right now is just strictly a humanitarian issue. This is really like where I think the diaspora has zoomed in and focused in on. And that's because most of us are in the arts, technology, entertainment, media, film, TV, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists. I'm not afraid to say I think most of us are very successful at what we do and have great educations and networks. And I think we all came together as a group and we essentially agreed what are the best talking points for the West? And we agreed the best talking points were humanitarian. And that's where we've been leaning in. Since Massa Zina Amini has been murdered, there has been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other young women murdered. I have the stats here, Moj, from your living document, which I was looking at earlier. 56 children killed, 362 protesters killed, 46 regime forces killed, 16,033 individuals arrested. And the list goes on. Like this has sparked a protest movement. As you said, there have been you know this underlying movements and tensions and flare-ups over the years. But this spark has brought together people in Iran, but also the diaspora. And that's, I think, as you said, Dina, this incredibly powerful movement where all of the people who left Iran previously are able to bring to bear the resources, the networks, the visibility, and yes, social media, to talk about what is a, a fundamentally, as you say, a human rights issue. The other thing that I want people to understand, and Dina, you used this word earlier, is this is an intersectional movement. So this isn't just about female rights or LGBTQ rights or Kurdish rights. There's a number of different issues here. Can you explain a little bit about the different groups, marginalized groups who have also come together? So it's not just the diaspora and the Iranians. It's also a a huge variety of people who have been systematically discriminated against by this regime over the last four decades. So I think, and I don't know if Moj will agree, but Masa Amini was very much, and I don't usually like to make these comparisons because I'm actually very much against the orientalization of Iran, but it's very much like the George Floyd almost of our movement in the sense that it was years of oppression 
and that her murder suddenly just exploded. And as Moj very rightly said before, there were uprisings before, they were crushed and they killed so many people. So this is nothing new. It's just the novelty aspect of it. It's just that we all suddenly united and the intersectional solidarity aspect of it, I think is a really historical and beautiful moment because a lot of people, I think in the beginning, in the first days of the revolution, kept on just referring, especially in the fashion world, as this movement being solely about women's rights. And I think that's also when you saw in in the fashion industry, like during fashion week, the caring group came together and, you know, made all these beautiful, incredible, powerful statements of solidarity. I mean, that Balenciaga post was amazing. One post, 14 million followers. That was just wow. So I think the early days, because the women took the street and because they were the ones that led the movement, it was indeed very much associated to being a women's rights movement. But it very quickly morphed into men standing besides them, students, children. And that, I think, was the beauty of it. And that's what makes it a historical feminist movement that should not be ever defined by via Western comparisons because it's its own movement in that sense. And that's what makes it so important and so historical. The other layer that I would add is that when I tell you it's intersectional solidarity is that everybody in our community now doesn't even think in terms of politics. We just think as one. So it's all our communities, all our minorities. You know, Masa was from Kurdistan and Iran. And so I think people now understand that we have different provinces. We have different minorities. I myself am half Zanjani, which is from the Turk area of, of Iran. My mother is Tehrani. So there's all these layers to our country. We have many religions. We want our Jewish community to be able to come back, our Baha'i community to be able to come back. We want our LGBTQ community to be able to live in peace there. This movement is all about intersectional solidarity. And I think in that sense, it's very novel, particularly for the region that we come from, because it's just a very beautiful movement altogether. And I think that's where the song Baroye was so symbolic in the early days of the revolution, because Baroye listed all the tweets that people were making in Iran about why they were taking the streets. You saw that there were just so many reasons from basic things to dancing in the street to the extinct species that we have that are that Peru's victory is a baby cheetah that represents, you know, our our extinct species. So the environment, the basic, basic human rights. And when we say basic human rights, it doesn't mean that our people, it goes back to nothing is allowed with this regime. Joy is forbidden. Truth is forbidden. Just living is forbidden, pretty much. And I don't think people ever realize the extent to how repressed and repressive this regime was. Because it kind of, although it's always oppressed and it was always against political prisoners, I don't think people realize the extent of how even environmentalists were put in jail 
for trying to do their job and just saving an extant species, how a singer could get immediately arrested, how an artist, Nick Yousefi, just a month ago, he was arrested. We don't know where he is. So that's really, when I say intersectional solidarity, I think there is no better example than to describe the beauty of this movement. And it's a moment where we're all united on so many fronts and how it's very much also a younger revolution. I think it's people probably our age and younger, very much leading it inside and outside. And it's bringing everybody together. Moj, as a queer person, you and I have chatted about this over the years, you know, being a queer Iranian has like inherent conflict in it, not just in Iran, but also in the diaspora. Like, how does this movement connect to that queerness, the queer part of you that, you know, has always had this kind of little conflict with your culture? So... I think one thing that's important to remember is, you know, I, I have tattooed on my hand, U and Un, which in Farsi, there's no gender around, right? Uh, and I think when I realized a few years ago that I myself was non-binary, I realized once again how connected I was to my culture. And I think one of the things I'm grateful for is that I am queer because I have been fighting for inclusion for the majority of my life through my work. It's not a surprise to me that the leaders within the diaspora are Jewish Iranians, Baha'i Iranians, queer Iranians. The number one voices that you're seeing out there over and over and over again are people who've been marginalized in some way. Sometimes I wonder if the entirety of my professional career has prepared me for this project, which has been the rebrand of Iranian people in Iran. And, And I think that it's actually proven to be incredibly useful and helpful in organizing and leading and articulating the why. I think that being queer has actually been a secret sauce for many of us. And so I would say the most interesting thing about what's going on right now is the first generation, like myself and our parents, there's a bitterness between us that's being melted. The older diaspora has been fighting this fight, but without the support of Gen Z millennials and younger Gen Xers, we have been self-consumed and disinterested. And maybe we were expressing it through art or film or fashion, but we were not politically involved. We were not as heavily committed. As you were saying, Dina, this is just a Gen Z movement. Instagram will tell you that the number one usage of Instagram in the Middle East is Iran. Maso Zina Amini and Maso Amini is truly, in the history of Instagram, one of the most popular hashtags we have ever seen, ever. Time Magazine nominating, you know, they're trying to nominate Iranian Women of the Year. From what I understand, it's already had in the millions or in the hundreds of thousands of submissions. This group is, because they are so stuck inside their homes, stuck inside a regime, You know it and I know it. Our minds have been blown from this content that we've seen, not just the violence, the murders, but the beauty of these young girls, the fact that they are so stylish and have cool hair and amazing tattoos and they're making songs like Baroya and your Tomas and we have rappers, we have people like Drake, we have a Tupac, we have a Jay-Z and for people like me, you're like, holy cow, like I, I had no idea that we... Like you think, oh, just give Iran a chance. They could be so contributing to a society with their art. No, they've been doing it the whole time. We just didn't know. TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter has blown the doors open. That's what always I find is very interesting when you visit countries that have repression and oppression is creativity 
it can never be truly killed. That kind of situation, that kind of environment where you're under constraints or pressure or your rights are being minimized and, and limited by an external force, that can unleash creativity, which kind of brings me to my next question, which is the two of you have both been unleashing the power and influence of creative communities in fashion and art and beyond that. I want to talk most first about your campaign and, and what you did. Tell me about the billboard campaign. Like, How did that all happen? You're going to love this story. Uh, I went to Musa's birthday in Joshua Tree, and I was in agony that weekend. I could not hold myself together. Our friend Musa was the CMO of Ford, and he was a Burberry and Nike. He's like a super famous CMO, and he's currently the CMO of GoFundMe. So we had spent the weekend agonizing, and I had my Aspen Institute Globalization Summit. So I left from Joshua Tree to go to my summit for Aspen. Musa calls me and he says, Mosh, what if I work it out with compliance and work through sanctions with you to get you a GoFundMe for a billboard strategy? And I said, can you do that? Because nobody on GoFundMe has a GoFundMe for Iran. He said, yeah, if you are willing to go through compliance and it'll take a couple of days of contracts and vetting you and vetting Roya, because Roya and I did this together, my wife, we'll get it for you. And it was the night that they had taken all the students, 500 students from Sharifa University, which for Western audiences, Sharifa University is equivalent to MIT or Yale or Harvard. It's an Ivy League school. And people are geniuses that go into this school and geniuses that come out of this school. And I was pissed when I saw this footage. I was angry. And so he said, I'll get it for you. Make it fire. So we got a group of us together in a WhatsApp channel, as you know, I do. And I said, let's rebrand this like Skims or Beats by Dre for Iran. Let's make all the creative, all the fonts, all the content revolutionary from Iran. All of our friends in Iran sent us artwork and fonts and typography and creative and color palettes. And we decided to basically take out 136 billboards between New York, LA and DC to rebrand the revolution as not a protest, but a revolution and a women life freedom led movement. And so that's how it began. And now it's evolved into essentially a full-blown organization that is now working on impact and policy. We held a press conference, press briefing the other night with Hillary Clinton and Massey Alinajad, uh, where we briefed everyone from Vanity Fair and Glamour to Vox and Don Lemon to essentially help. How can we editorialize this movement for people to get beyond the geopolitical issues, which are too complicated for anyone I know to solve, and it's going to require time to resolve these geopolitical issues, but to editorialize it, because you and I both know, and I think anyone in the diaspora, whether you're Iranian or from India or from Pakistan, wherever you are from, you know the only way to move culture is through storytelling. And so we have been working our butts off to storytell this revolution as a human rights revolution so that people around the world care about it. So Dina, you've also been working completely separately on your own creative movement based out of Europe. Talk to me about how you're leveraging and working with creative communities to bring awareness to what's going on. I work in arts and culture. I mean, I was an art advisor and a curator and a cultural strategist. So the way I approach this revolution is very much like a work project. 
I just couldn't concentrate anymore after a week when everything began. And I was like, you know what? The first thing I'm going to do is at least I'm going to try to start raising awareness via my own Instagram. And my Instagram is private. I have about like a thousand followers, all people I know. And that's because I've never really wanted to go public. But the people who followed me were a lot of people who were in the art world and in the fashion world. And I always believed in that network and being a network that was something that I wanted to develop. And this was the time that really it came in handy simply because what I first began doing was storytelling on my Instagram. So I didn't want to bombard people with too much information, especially when you put too much violent content, people just, you know, they can't take it. And I also don't think they would understand because there's all these different layers to Iran, this movement and the past 43 years. So what I did was one aspect on my wall or my permanent post, which are individual essays, which I publish every two days and they're specific. I don't know if you saw Imran, but it's like every word is in three languages. So it's in English, French and Farsi, because those are the languages I speak, but also because there is a bit of a political undertone in terms of the countries that actually can help to bring change with us. And, you know, again, it's our generation is very much more alert, I feel, not just as Iranians, but globally as to everything that's happening in the world. And then the other Iranians like myself who were active in this movement started sharing the info or sending me info. And it really became a chain from Tehran all the way to LA. And I think that that is one aspect where social media really helped because it helped us raise awareness and it helped us create unity. But it also, like I was saying earlier, helped us identify our allies globally. And it also inspired different people and different elements. So Moj, what she was describing right now, what you were describing, Moj, in terms of the Sharif University shooting, I mean, I couldn't sleep by then. I was a wreck when I saw that. Suddenly it was like a tsunami of emotions that came out of me. And again, it's nothing new. It's been 43 years they're oppressing people. But to see it, to see this generation, this beautiful generation that we have getting slaughtered just for asking to be free, just to live like everybody else. It was so heartbreaking that finally one morning I was going to London for freeze and that was the 7th of October. I missed my flight because I, I constantly kept on looking at my phone. And that day I decided because I was falling apart, I decided that's it. I'm stopping, I'm getting my act together and I'm going to do something that's productive, anything that's also in the physical world. And that's when I started the campaign during freeze, where I just created these t-shirts and these bags with the slogan and decided with two other friends and the designer I've been working with for years who helped me immediately because he was following my account to start this campaign where we would be giving these shirts and these bags to very specific people who, for instance, were in the international art community and who were going to be in freeze that morning. Because for me, it was deafening that the art world wasn't saying anything. And then I had a lot of friends in the fashion industry who also follow me, who then also became really interested. And I realized if I team up with them and I make this an international collective, this will be basically, it's like a human billboard where people wear the shirt, there is a QR code. And believe it or not, the QR code takes you to a site 
that another collective did that's anonymous, and I'll send it to you, Moj. It's amazing. It's like a playbook, basically, that's informative about what's happening. There is your article in there. It's basically all the Harper's Bazaar US articles that were published in October that are on there. It's completely politically neutral in terms of, it just tells you where the protests are. It tells you what the movement is about. And that would have never happened in the time that I wanted it to happen had we not been all united. And it became very quickly a collective. Uh, We're launching it now in seven cities in the world. We don't sell these because it goes against my beliefs to sell anything towards, you know, it's the, the oppression of our people. So it's about amplifying their voices. And the idea is basically posting it forward. So when people wear the shirts or the bags, they photograph themselves. It's about amplifying the voices. So everybody who wears a t-shirt becomes a billboard, but also amplifies the voices with their Instagram. So when Moj launched our campaign, we were all like, oh my God, this is so it. Because also it showed how impactful that is and how if we all apply our professional skills or any skills to this revolution, that's how it's going to succeed. So what are your hopes in terms of a response from the international community? I mean, as you've both mentioned, this situation is also connected to a lot of geopolitical complications between the West and Iran that go back a long time, years of sanctions because of the nuclear program in Iran and all that stuff that we don't want to get into. But like, how can the international community constructively respond, get involved and take action? I'm glad you asked this question. So I'm going to run through a quick list of things. First and foremost, they can recognize it as not a protest, but a revolution. They can recognize this revolution. I think Macron and Masi Alinejad moment was very important to recognize and for him to chant Zen Zendigi Ozadi. That was important. I think that they can revoke visas of the Islamic Republic, their children, their families, close those embassies, recall them, freeze their assets, and insist that all allies of the West stop doing any and all business with the Islamic Republic. That is an extreme step one, but this needs to happen immediately. Allowing the United Nations Amnesty International Justice for Iran to immediately enter Iran to start to investigate these crimes against humanities and for the Islamic Republic to cease all executions immediately is also hugely important. I also want to say to the West, because I know there was a bit of a misinformation strategy the Islamic Republic sort of unleashed on us a few days ago about the 15,000 protesters. It is very important the West and Western media understand that it is in the best interest of Mech and Nyack and the Islamic Republic to continually undermine this effort. And there will be disinformation they launch. And when the American public reposts it, and there's one word, were 15,000 people sentenced to death or did the parliament vote to approve that they could be? This was a nuanced. I think everyone was very anxious and stressed out over this nuance, but that does not mean they should stop reporting. They need to keep reporting. They need to get to accurate reporting. And I think people need to understand that reporting will not be perfect because we do not have journalists on the ground. We do not have enough human rights organizations on the ground that can operate safely. And I think that's really important. The second thing is enabling VPN companies, Starlink, any and all efforts to keep the internet alive and streaming for the people of Iran against the Islamic Republic, which is their only weapon right now. It's important for brands, for countries, for people. I'm about to get into phase two of this, which is a massive VPN strategy. 
and supporting the people on the ground to just continue to have communication, which is incredibly important. And so they're very tactical things that we all need to move into because their lives are at stake. And it is going to be a matter of months while we all go into the holidays. They will begin executions. There's word on the street. They're already rolling out these bulldozers so they can start the public hangings that they will put on public television. I think we are past the awareness moment. And now we are into full court press senators, governments, your parliament, your diplomatic representation to demand a humanitarian effort to cease this absolute atrocity of human rights. What I think is so important to understand in this movement, I mean, I personally was never an activist before. I just always stood up for things I thought were important, but I never, ever thought I would be like as hardcore as I am right now. But that's because we all have our duty right now to our people and to our motherland. And I think that strategy is one of the key things in this revolution from the outside, that we need to be very creative and strategic about how we raise awareness and to make sure that there is no misinformation. I mean, for me, I literally scan the information I share. I will not share anything until I verify it because citizen journalism has been key in this movement. That is what really we've had to rely on. We just see what we can see with the people who are courageous enough to share the footage And they die for it sometimes. And I was really angry personally when I started seeing the backlash suddenly where people were like, yeah, one person was sentenced to death. That's like demeaning the movement when they've been killing kids in the street every single day since the beginning of this movement. And they've been doing this for 43 freaking years. So I don't want these 15,000 people to be then spoken about in the past tense like it's happened before. Because the 1988 massacres the massacres that happened in 2019, they were all reported about later. We don't want that to happen. The 15,000 people right now that were sentenced to death, that is not a joke. Maybe the sentence has not passed yet, but they can absolutely do it. They've done it before. They'll do it again. And that's what I hope everybody can understand. Yeah. And, and so the core message for me here is like, leave aside the politics, focus on the human rights inform yourself, follow some of the accounts that Moj and Dina have been mentioning and that they're both actively sharing on their Instagram accounts. I know it's such a sensitive and personal topic for you both. And I just really want to thank you for sharing your personal stories and and to congratulate you for all the work that you're doing to help educate people on what is a very, very complex topic and one that I think it behooves all of us to understand better if we do care about you know, human rights in the world. So thank you, Moj. Can I thank you for a moment? Can I acknowledge you? Sure. Please. I want to acknowledge you for being a friend and an ally, not just on this topic, but many topics to me personally over the past, since the first day we met where you forgot your wallet. <laughs> and <laughs> I want to acknowledge you that you have always made an effort beyond your discomfort or not knowing to to understand different stories. And I think you have an important role, Imran. And I think business of fashion has an important role because the fashion and beauty industry, your voice is incredibly important. You are incredibly influential and you have a ton of empathy on this topic from multiple different angles. And so I just want to acknowledge you and Business of Fashion for always being early to supporting these stories. I think you are one of the most important people in this industry and you have 
made a huge difference today by giving us an opportunity to talk about this issue. So I just want to thank you and the business of fashion as always for being an ally, for being on the right side of history. I agree. And I'm so thankful for this opportunity for, for our people to, to be heard. This is all about their voices. And I'm grateful for this opportunity. And I think you're really, truly an incredible human being. And what you're doing is really meaningful. So thank you. Really comes from the heart. Thank you both. That's extremely kind of you. And I just always want to make sure that we're using this platform that's been built by many people, not just me, to put a spotlight on things that I think people need to understand better. And we, like, there's so many complex things happening in the world. So every conversation I have with a, someone doing this job for the last 15 years, I learn. And I learned from this conversation too. So I'm really grateful. And um, I hope to see you both very soon in person. In the meantime, keep fighting the good fight. For everyone who will be listening to this in Iran, Zan Zendigi Azadi and Malboham Hastim, we love you very much. We're coming for you for free Iran. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولی اصر و درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سکهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان هفتانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این همه شعارهای تو خالی برای آوار خونه های پوشالی برای احساس آرامش برای خورشید پس از شبای طولانی برای غرصای حساب و بیخوابی برای مرد میهن آبادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت پسر بود برای زن زندگی آزادی The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team.